0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome
1: in to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Preem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show today, this Monday, addition back to our regular scheduled programming. A couple days away from National Signing Day, the second period. It's going to be a low key one. Uh, from a numbers perspective for the Oregon Ducks, but it could be, a, it could include a bunch of fireworks. Uh, Oregon's in on a couple players that are including five star Nichols Harbor, who was here this past weekend. But uh, on today's show, we're going to dive into the mailbag. We've got some football, we've got some basketball, we've kind of got a lot going on right now. Uh, and that's going to be reflective with this podcast.
0: Yeah, first half show is going to be football. Second half will be basketball. We'll touch on both men's and women's teams. So get ready for that. Uh, I guess a spoiler warning for those who uh, want to know what happens in the back end. But we're going to start kind of where Matt was talking about a moment ago with a question from at Ross Maselech. How many additional prep players do you anticipate sign as National Signing Day approaches? Hashtag Outs A Good question, Ross, to kind of set the stage for us for this week. As Matt said, Wednesday, big day, opportunity to add more players. Ducks just had Harbor on campus for a visit. I know he was seen at the men's basketball game on Saturday. Seemed like he was having a good time there. He's posted a little bit on social media. Um, Matt, that's the obvious player that Oregon is in line to potentially add. The question here is how many additional players, if we we consider Harbor as a maybe, who else is really – even in the picture right now for Oregon here as we come close here. I mean, what would be the most players you could see Oregon signing in a couple of days?
1: I mean, outside of just like an incredibly off-the-wall commitment, there's basically three guys that Oregon is recruiting and that Oregon is a player for. Um, Harbor being, I think, the most likely of – the group, the five-star from back East. Uh, And then there's Roderick Pleasant, a four-star top like 100 prospect, a cornerback. He will also be announcing uh, that morning. Um, I believe it's 10 a.m. Pacific time. Um, Oregon, USC are kind of the big schools there. Cal is involved. Boston college is involved. And there's another one, but um it's basically Oregon versus USC and it's gone back and forth left and right uh I, I think both schools could 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 claim that at one point they were the favorite could claim today that they are the favorite um i think it maybe shades a little towards USC but we'll see um and then there's Deuce Robinson who uh is technically considering Oregon um Crystal balls trending George's way has been the last couple of weeks. Oregon was trying to get him to visit for an official visit, uh, this past weekend that obviously did not happen. It's tough to envision Deuce picking Oregon without taking an official visit to Oregon. Um, so that, that's, that's the three guys. Um, there could be some, maybe some portal additions. I don't know that, that pop up at the very late moments. Um, Maybe there's a, a super sleeper that they've got that, that, that they could be you know pulling in. But I, I think the second signing day period is going to be all about Oregon announcing the signings from a transfer portal, maybe adding a Nicholas Harbor, maybe adding a Roderick Pleasant. And then it's all going to be focused on just kind of the big picture type stuff for Oregon uh, in 2023 from a media us talking with Dan perspective.
0: Um, Jared, I'm going to ask you just straight up, how many players do you think they're going to get of the players Matt just outlined Oregon's in on? What would your guess be? One. Yeah, yeah, me too. I would just
2: say one. I don't, I mean, there's just no reason to take these, this many guys. Like they don't, I would much rather see Dan and company go to transfer portal to get some scholarship players. Um, I mean, Nicholas Harper is a legitimate, you know, five-star talent that of course you take. And I think Roderick Pleasant is a take as well, but I share the same sentiment as Matt said earlier, where it's probably more of a USC lean than an Oregon lean. I don't, I mean, I would imagine these, both these schools are just going really hard after him because if Pleasant commits to Oregon, um, he's got a chance to work his way into the rotation. Uh, I did my defensive two deep on Friday and there are no freshmen in the rotation because I don't think there would be, but Roderick Pleasant is a really talented cornerback uh, out of Southern California. so. I think he could, but Harbour is a guy, is a position of need, as we talked about, as I've talked about on this podcast many times, a tight end. Um, he wants to run in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. Um, there's a lot of good schools to do it at. I don't know if there's a better school to try and learn how to run to get into the Olympics than Oregon. Um, I think that's the best track school in the country, and that's probably a bit biased, but I think there are a lot of accolades behind it to uh, make a legitimate argument about it uh, for for Harvard to, to think which school is the best to run track. I still think Oregon is probably the leader in that category. But if you're Dan, we've talked about it on the show as well, like scholarships are tight. Um, theoretically, they are tight, even though they don't act like they are tight. Um, you, you probably don't want to use too many right now, especially on guys who may or just may not play in their first no, no, no! First two seasons in the program.
0: Yeah, I was doing the quarterback. Oh, sorry, cornerback depth chart. Um, and again, I agree with Jared that the, just the, the top 100 players that take, regardless of position. But if you were just to boil it down to the position group thing, there isn't a need really at corner to add players. Um, I think they're at 10 or 11 right now for two start. You know, two positions on the field. It's a lot of depth, and I think that is a position where I continue to expect maybe there'll be turnover after spring. Um, but I, I could see where if they don't land Pleasant, I don't think that's the end of the world. And I also land with Jared, where it feels like it's probably either Harbor or Pleasant, but it doesn't seem like they're gonna land. Like, Matt, would you be stunned if they landed more than two players? Like, I think it, it feels like they're probably gonna like best case would be two, most likely number is one. Feels like where we're at, yeah.
1: I, I would not be stunned if they got both guys. I would be pleasantly surprised, (laughs) but it wouldn't be it it wouldn't be a surprise or it wouldn't be like a stunning development. More than two would be a stunning development. You know, and whoever that third person is to Jared's point has to be a really good player. Like this is like a a guy that they view as you just cannot pass on this player. Whoever that is. So if it's like a let's just say James O'Connell from s- South, you
0: know, this made South Los
1: Angeles commits to Oregon on signing day and gets a scholarship. Like they they view this dude as someone who could come in right away in 2023 and make an impact. Like that's the only reason they would add a another guy than
0: one of these two players and we should note the fact that matt had to make up a third person speaks to the, <laughs> just to the, the few number of options that are out there still the fact that you had to come up with a, a fake human being to to throw in here all right i think that kind of wraps up for the recruiting element a couple of days from now we'll have a recap show of what happens here i think we're trying to get a guest to join us uh, probably a fairly quiet signing day but a good opportunity to maybe uh kind of recap the whole class and where Oregon's at and reset things from a scholarship perspective a little bit too. All right. Second one from at BBAT96. Asked this last week, but didn't make the show. Are there any players that may switch positions to provide tight end depth as DJ Johnson and Terrell Tillman previously did? Hashtag Otson Audibles. I'm not really seeing much here. Uh DJ Tillman, Hunter Cantmoyer. There's been kind of a trend over the last half a yeah, half a decade where they've found several guys who've been defensive players, moved them over to offense. Um, the the like, like you look at – and those guys have all been edge defensive linemen. I don't see mm-hmm. just the requisite body types really at all that are currently on – like returners from 22. I was just looking through the depth chart here and kind of going, like, who could even really fit there? I don't see – any of the outside linebacker edge guys making much of any sense, to be honest with you, like uh, Mace Funa doesn't fit, doesn't really strike me as a tight end, and you probably need him on defense. I don't see Amarian Winston or Anthony Jones in that light. I don't certainly don't see like Jake Shipley or Trevon Anthony Maai.
2: Anthony Jones did play tight end in high school.
0: Okay, so maybe that would be a logical one. Six, three, 245, certainly a little more compact. But like, I I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, and then I said my eye and Shipley being defensive ends. No. They're, definitely not explosive enough and would be massive human beings to play there. I guess my eye just is a strictly, I'm just going to blow people up, block people maybe, but I, I don't see it. And then in the, in the, in the incoming class, there are more players that maybe fit the bill. Like Mateo Uyunglile is probably the most, I know he played in the high level in high school, but I just don't see you making the move. So my, my answer is probably not that I see. Um, and that's just kind of where you're at. Uh, because the thing that made it, the thing that had that provided value for Canton Meyer Johnson and Tillman is you had enough depth on the defensive line at those positions to just move a guy over I know you have the numbers right now it's just it's unclear to me of like who all those guys are uh, I guess I guess I guess you could say Anthony Jones probably isn't playing much this year so to Jared's point if there is a candidate maybe it's Anthony Jones because he's played a little bit at tight end but uh, I I really don't see a logical name to throw out here to be honest
2: no i don't i don't think that there's a logical name to throw out here at all i I think it's i think it's always been silly trying to convert guys over to a different position i think it so rarely works out i think the guy the the position you recruit them for should be where they stick because that's the best the best opportunity for them to develop that's why you took them in the first place um Guys like Terrell Tillman, I understand, have the speed to be like a tight end. The same with D.J. Johnson. or They have some background of playing tight end. I just I just don't like it. I don't think that there's anybody on this roster specifically for Oregon this year that would really fit that tight end role. Um, I know people have brought up Mateo Uyunglele as playing tight ends. That's not why you brought him to campus. That's not why he picked Oregon. He, he picked Oregon. He's going to pick any school uh, to go play defensive end and go play the edge and get to the quarterback because that's what he's best at. Um, I know that he played tight end in high school. I don't – it's like taking uh, J, JT uh, Tuamale, who plays for Ohio State, and saying, nah no, nah, we, we want him as a tight end. No, 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 you don't. You want him as an edge guy. You want him rushing the quarterback. Um, I think the best answer for this question is you recruit and sign and get a transportal commitment, whatever. You recruit and sign a tight end to go play tight end. I think that's the best option here.
1: Yeah. It, it's Harbor. I mean, you get Harbor to play your tight end, to be your fourth guy. And if you don't get Harbor, then you hit the portal and you try and find one more, uh, that way. I knowing the scholarship limitations that they have right now, knowing who's available right now, I, I don't think you go high school guy and portal guy or two portal guys. If you miss out on Harbor, you, you, you you've got four, uh, you, you roll with four. Is it ideal numbers? No. You'd prefer to have five, but you know you, you, you don't have a lot of room. I'd rather have Pleasant and a fourth tight end than two tight ends um, on this roster moving forward. So I I, I agree. Don't move anybody. Um, find Harbor and, or get, get Harbor. If you don't get Harbor, then you got to go find a portal tight end, which there will be. Plenty of options to find a fourth tight end on your roster. Um, I, I think we're all in agreement that Ferguson is one, and then Herbert and Sadiq, you know, one could be two, one the other could be three, it could be flip-flopped, and, and those guys would be fine in those roles.
0: Yeah, I don't have a whole lot more to add at tight end. I, I think it's the, the one position offensively where you undoubtedly – probably on the team where you just don't have the numbers to feel awesome right now, I, I'm mm-hmm. confident – I think in 48 hours, if they land Harbor, people are going to be singing a different tune and feeling a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. I still I still think personally, I- I'd like to find just like a- an inline guy to fit more of the blocking role because, as we know, Sadiq, That's Harbor, yeah. probably more hybrid receiver tight ends as opposed to being, you know, e- even even this last couple of years, you know, you had a Ferguson who would sp- split out wide a little bit more frequently, and you had McCormick and Madova who would and, and Herbert who would be, almost exclusively i think maybe mccormick did line out out wide a little bit at times but in general that was kind of the way you had a little bit different differing roles um probably would love to have a guy who's just a little bit more consistent and proven as a blocker than what you have returning but herbert i think has shown signs there and, and maybe the simple answer is he's just gonna be your primary blocking tight end and that's a good enough role to keep him happy and everybody else is going to be involved in the offense as a pass catcher more. So I, I don't know. But I, I do think if you get to four, that's enough to, to operate an offense, as we saw this last year. The, the composition of the group is a little strange to me, but I think would certainly be good. And you have plenty of talent from that group. I mean, those are all blue-chip talent recruits.
1: I think with mm-hmm. Patrick, the thing to remember with him was, like, Herbert Justin Herbert even said it himself. Like, he's the best one of the three from like an athletic standpoint, from a physical standpoint. Um, And he's a big dude. He's like 250, 255 pounds now. And next season will be two years removed from that 2021 injury. And that's typically when you see guys get back to where they were at the, you know, prior to the injury. It's about a two year timeline. So, like no like I, I think knowing the fact that he's already a big guy he probably could pack on even more weight he's got a full offseason of training and he'll be two years removed from that injury like I'm not saying he's gonna explode in production but it, it lines up for how it could progress to get him there to be a, a more regular contributor to Oregon's offense next season well and kind
0: of I yeah, would
2: I was just gonna say I I worry about putting that much faith into a guy who's been who was completely injured for two years and had these sure. injuries and is injury prone and has a history of it. I think honestly, if the last name wasn't Herbert, it, it would we would have, all have a little bit more trepidation about this position group because there's only three guys on roster right now. And uh, I don't, like I brought I don't up before, that, I, fair. I I don't want to bring it up and and go into it once again, but it, it sure. tight end is a position group that can easily be injured. And then suddenly you're down to two tight ends and it just doesn't look good. This is all barring what Harvard does tomorrow. Right. I just, I'll, I'll go over. Uh, I, I think they should add two more tight ends. And I know that that scholarship math is is difficult and there's, it's tiding, but um, I still think adding two more tight ends is, is huge for that room. But I guess it ultimately depends um, where Will Stein wants to go with the room. Cause it's similar. If it's similar to Dillingham, they absolutely need two more tight ends. If it's not, then they could skirt around it. But that's all I got to say about the tight end room.
1: All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we'll dive into the second half of basketball-focused
2: version of the Odds and Audible's podcast. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right,
1: welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. Uh, two questions in, a couple more to go. And we're going to switch sports, I think, for the most part here uh, and talk some some hoops.
0: Yeah, two questions left. One men's hoops, one women's basketball. Uh, first from at 541 ducks. Does the Oregon men's basketball team have a chance, have any chance of making it to the big dance? Uh, Matt, I'll let you handle this, but I would imagine yeah. this last weekend's games gives you a little bit more optimism, a little bit of momentum, obviously not marquee wins necessarily. Utah, a better win than Colorado, but puts you in a spot to at least in striking distance, right? Absolutely. I mean, is there a chance?
1: Yes. I mean, I, I think the, the, debate's going to be just how good of a chance does Oregon have? Um, and look, like we've all been down on the men's team this season. Um it's not been up to standard, it's not it's not been pretty, but we're going into the month of February when the next games play. And as crazy as it sounds, Oregon is one and a half games out of first place in the Pac 12 standings. Um They still have to play UCLA, who's number one in the standings, one and a half games back. They still have to play Arizona. They get USC, who's also ahead of them. Uh, And they have the tiebreaker over Utah, beating them twice this season. Uh, And they sit half a game behind the Utes. Um, They're one game up on ASU, who's the next team below them. And they're a game and a half up on both the Cougars and the Huskies, who they both have to they have to play both those teams as well. So, like this narrative that the season is lost is false because you go into February knowing that you're only one and a half games out of first place. Like it's not highly probable, but it's still possible you can win the league or at least tie for a share for the you know of of the conference championship. Uh, And and if you do that in the regular season, then you're going to have a really good chance to make the NCAA tournament. Um, Oregon's just under the the top 60 in the net rankings right now. Uh, They're 59th. That number will go up if they're able to get two wins or even if they're able to get one win this coming weekend because they play at Arizona, uh, who is 10th in the country in net rankings and then they play ASU on Saturday, who is 64th in the net rankings, both of those being quad one games. Um, it would go a long ways if they could get a sweep. That's gonna be incredibly hard. They got swept last year on the road on this road swing. Um, but Oregon's chances they're not dead yet. Like there, there were bracketologists, that is that what we call them, um, that that came out over the weekend and like had Oregon in that. They, were, they, were, they weren't the first four out. They weren't the next four out, but they were under consideration. So they're like eight games, eight teams behind um, getting on the bubble. So like, you go one-on-one one this weekend, um, you're probably back in that discussion of in the bubble, on the wrong side of the bubble, to where you've got home games against UCLA and USC next week. And you, you win both of those and you're probably back on the right side of the bubble. Like that's, that's the immediate path probably to get yourself back on the right side of the bubble, go three and one in the next four games.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously that would help a ton. Um, yeah, they, they have a chance they've, they've done much better recently and it took a couple games for everybody to get into the motions of how this team would do with an 11 man or 10 man rotation. Um, they seem to be figuring it out. They seem to be spacing the floor a lot better, giving Will Richardson a little more driving lanes, giving DeFale Dante a little bit more of uh, an opportunity to post up. Um, Keyshawn Bartholomew and Jermaine Kuznard have, have provided Richardson another another ball handler with either both of them on the court or one of them on the court at one time. Um, what we have been preaching for for the last couple of months at this point, with all the injuries. Um, Yeah, they look much new and improved. It's interesting. It's like a different team on the court. But then again, with all their injuries, it really was a different team that was just off the court. Um, Oregon's in the driver's seat, so to speak. Yeah, they have a chance if they figure it out to get into the the tournament. And like Matt said, if they go the three and one over the next four games, that gives them, I, I wouldn't say it's an automatic, but it certainly helps their case. It drives their case up sky high in terms of getting into the tournament. However, it's not against easy competition. I mean, Arizona State blew the doors off of them in Eugene. I don't expect I don't anticipate Arizona State shooting again like that because I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of teams do that in the last couple of years, frankly, in the way they were shooting at Matthew Knight Arena. Arizona is always extremely difficult. That's a very tough environment to play. Oregon does always play Arizona um, very well. They seem to match up with them pretty well for some reason. Um, and then USC and UCLA. I mean, UCLA and Arizona, when they battled uh, two weeks ago, that was a heck of a game. Uh, USC is is up and down the season. They're not nearly what they were last year. But that's still – those are both difficult teams, and Oregon luckily has them at home and Matthew Knight. Um, it's just going to be – it's just going to be up to them. If they come up and – if they come and show up every single game, they have a real chance of, of doing a 3-1 and one, like Matt said earlier. Um, it's just going to be tough, but it's up, all up to Oregon. It's all up to Dan Allman. It's all up to the players if they want it.
1: Oregon's got four games as of right now that are quad one games left on their schedule. Um, yep. And some of those or three of those are all on the road. The only home one is a, is a UCLA game. So it's hard, but you're going to have to win on the road. You have to go two and two in those quad one games. Um that could be a win at ASU. That could be a win potentially at Washington State. Um, but you got to beat UCLA at home. And I guess the easiest way to say this is you, you got to sweep at home and you got to split on the road. You do that, and and you're in. You're probably going to be in because that means you have wins over UCLA. You have win over USC. Uh, you beat uh, Stanford and Cal, which won't do anything for your your net rankings. Uh, you split at Washington and Washington State, and you split at Arizona and at a- ASU. You sweep at home, you split on the road, you win a game in Vegas, you're probably in. it. Is it doable? Yes. Is it easy? No. And that's the unfortunate situation that they're in. So I think it's a lot better than it was last season from, from a tournament perspective, though.
0: Matt, what's – just not to stay too long on this topic, but because we want to get to the women's team in a second, but I maybe mean, we we haven't done a whole lot of basketball talk. We 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 talked in the yeah. past, about I think we did one hoops specific podcast and it didn't seem like the interest level was quite where we we'd like it. But let's devote a little more time to the men's team because I I think it's deserved based upon what they've done over the last six or seven games. What, what's been I, I think Jared made a good point there about you, they've almost kind of had two different seasons here where they had the season where they were, were low on numbers, everybody was hurt, and then they've had this kind of infusion of talent in the last, what, five or six games where they've got everyone back and now they're just kind of figuring everything out. What, what's been the key to to success with this kind of, I guess, with just everybody available now for the first time?
1: Um, well, I think Kuznard's addition has been beneficial. I mean, 13 and a half points per game. He's shooting, I think the, the team high 37.8% on threes. That's not like any elite number, but that's still pretty good. Um, and it, it's significantly better than a lot of guys on this team. And just, you know, he's had a 27 point game against Arizona. He had 18 against Utah um, against Colorado. He he really wasn't uh, that big of a scoring factor, but I asked Dana after, the Utah game, just how big has it been for Kuznard and Barthelemy getting back and being on the floor and being playable? How how big has it been for Will Richardson? Because I, I don't know if, if this has gone noticed at all by by people out there, but he Richardson really didn't like perform well shooting the the, the basketball. Just seven of twenty three from the floor in those two games. He scored 20 points combined, so average 10 a game, but it was a poor shooting effort. Now, he had seven assists against Utah. He had six assists against Colorado, but he no longer has to be the guy that scores and creates every single game. And he's like, yeah, Dano's response was "It's it's been big. It, it's it's helpful. It, it's a notable you know, thing for this team. Now, Will doesn't have to be – Everything and he, and he has to do it at, at a really high level too. Um, and then Bartholomew has he's had some good moments. Uh, he had 10 against Cal, 11 against Stanford. He was the only one that really shot it well from three in that game. And then against Colorado, he was really efficient 13 points on seven field goals attempts, um, uh, 75% on threes. Uh, really good player. And against Utah, he has he had two assists. And just one turnover, a two to one assist ratio. You take that every time. So I, I think the biggest thing has just been Bartholomew and Kuznard now kind of getting back into their rhythm. And you know, they're they're playing games. They've they've played more than a handful since coming back from injury, and it's helped. And then, you know, you're you're getting some timely contributions from guys like Biddle when he, he played against Arizona uh and started in that game, Biddle against um, Colorado was fantastic. Biddle against Utah was fantastic. Luke were the last two games has been really impressive. So um, you're getting some reinforcements back, and then you're getting some timely guys stepping up when, when needed. And it gives you at least a sense of hope, which can be a dangerous thing uh, about this team and maybe turning things around.
0: I was going to say, that seems to be the, the death now. Every time you get a little bit of hope and everything looks good, it's something not – then they play Stanford, or then they play Arizona State, yep. and it's like, oh, boy, what is going on? But no, I reason to be optimistic, I think. Well, I think, strangely, we've reached the point of the year, in this kind of transitions to the, the final question, where there's probably more momentum, more optimism right now with where the men's team has been than the women's program, where I know the women's team had a much better start, but this kind of transitions to a question from Emmy Batty we'll get to in a moment here, but... The women's teams kind of hit a bit of a lull here. Five and five now in conference play. I understand the, the schedule has not been forgiving. Very challenging schedule. A lot of these are, are are to most of the defeats have been to teams in the top 30 of the net ranking. So very good programs. But found himself in kind of a strange spot. So we'll answer we'll try to answer some of the questions here from at Emmy Batty. Talk about the women's basketball team, specifically about the struggles they have and their ceiling for the Pac-12 at NCAA tournaments. Um some of the struggles is they're going against really good competition with a lot of young players that are kind of doing this for the first time. So I'll give a, I'll, I'll give a little bit of credence to the, hey, they're kind of young and inexperienced. They do start two true freshmen. And I almost categorize Che as a true freshman, basically her first time playing at this high of a level with, with any sort of regularity. So there's a little bit of youth there. Um, but I think the thing that was been a little bit frustrating in – Especially this last stretch of games where they've they've lost more than they've won has been just the inconsistencies from their veteran guards and Kelly Graves kind of touched on this after the Stanford loss because Rogers and Powell, Powell I think I've still got the stats pulled up yeah they do were a combined uh, five for twenty eight from the field which is just miserable you know Oregon good. only sh- that's good Oregon <laughs> shot twenty for eighty from the field in this game so they were kind of not also alone and <laughs> not being good. Nobody shot well against Stanford. I think so.
2: field goal attempts?
0: Well, Oregon also had, I think. That's Kelly, so many. Kelly thinks they might have had more because Philly, Che had 17 rebounds and Oregon had 23 offensive rebounds. Che had eight. Uh, 23 offensive rebounds, according to Kelly. I have not checked this. He thinks is the most he's seen against Stanford since he's been coaching in the league. Um, I mean, Oregon, Oregon hit the glass really hard and out-rebounded Stanford, who's maybe the best rebounding team in the country. So that was good. Like che, che played fantastic. So there's a positive. But we're talking about the not positives, which is yeah, they shot a lot of shots. And they had a lot of offensive rebounds, and they almost—I mean, the fact that you have almost as many offensive rebounds as made field goals—that's uh, concerning. Or sorry, more. They had, they had 23 offensive more. rebounds and 20 made field goals. That's a stat you very rarely see. Um, but gets to the point of like you know I'm, I'm going to have a story up later on on Monday about just kind of kind of assessing where the season's at because it. You know they've played ten. They're five and five in conference. They have eight left. It doesn't get any easier. Six of the eight teams that they have to play on the schedule are are teams that are in the position to be tournament teams right now, um and teams that are in the top. I think forty of the net. I haven't looked to see where. Where did Washington State? Washington State upset Arizona, so I assume they moved into the top forty. Yeah, they're not thirty-nine. So yeah, six of the eight remaining teams are in the top forty of the net rankings. That's. Gonna be tough, and they to even be five hundred the rest of the way, they they need to they need to win half those games. They need to win four out of six, basically, or like four out of eight down the stretch with, with only two gimme games. So they're gonna have to do some heavy lifting, even just to get to five hundred. Um, but the point I was getting at is the guards have been inconsistent, the three point shooting's been inconsistent, the rebounding efforts have been inconsistent. I mean, everything's really mm-hmm. just been inconsistent. I mean, you look at the way they've lost games, like they they lose to to Washington State. They lose to Oregon State. Uh, the defense was really not very good in either one of those games. The three-point pers- shooting was terrible against Oregon State. The The rebounding and, and post-defense was not good against either Washington State or Oregon State. And then they hit the road against Cal and Stanford, and three-point shooting was terrible in both games. The rebounding was good in both games. The veteran players were kind of up and down in both games. Like it, It's just kind of been a, a strange run here. And I think you do start going like, okay, like the – the, the alphas on this team that were supposedly the alphas are, are they really the alphas right now? Cause this is supposed to be India Rogers team. And I think she's been excellent all year. I don't want to really call her out too much. Cause this was probably more of an aberration performance, but you play in almost a must win against Stanford and to have her have, I would say her worst, maybe game of the season, maybe worst game since she's been here almost. I mean, three for 14 from the field, uh, one assist. So she wasn't even really distributing very mm-hmm. much. I, I thought, I just thought she didn't play up to standard. So that was disappointing. And then, Ben sluton I think, is the other one, and I mentioned not to go too long. Of Eric rambles about women's basketball, but you can tell I've I've got some thoughts. But I I, I think Ben Sluten's just been so up and down of late, and I think that's you can chalk someone up to freshman youth. But three of her last four games, she's shot like about ten percent from the field. <laughs> so uh, yeah, can't, can't, I think can't that, do that I think win. that
2: injury, I think her injury is really really bugging her. Like I know she she came back and she didn't practice and then she came back and played in a game and seemingly was okay. I still think that that's really, really bugging her on the court. I, it just, she's been night and day different from what pre-injury and post injury. I don't know if that uh, has a lot to do with it. I, I just, I, I think you there's know, a lack look of explosiveness,
0: like the, a little bit of a lack of explosiveness yeah, and going against better front which is courts one of her, is her
2: problem. Yeah. Right, going into better front courts doesn't help, but her her explosiveness and her ability to score on the interior was like her biggest thing. Like she took yeah. contact and, or and drew contact as well. Not a great free throw shooter, but that's Getting okay. Better. You live with it when you get to the line six to eight times. You live with it. But yeah, I just I think that there's such a clear like uh, difference in stats between injury and then not and the non-injury. But um, yeah, Eric, I, I I mean I'm at the I'm at Matthew Knight not as often as you are, obviously, but it's the, they've been consistently inconsistent, I think is a wonderful way to describe it, um, especially given their their backcourt situations where it is India Rogers' team, and if she's not doing well one day, Oregon is in a load of trouble because I don't think you can consistently rely on Tahina Pow Pow or Chance Gray or Grace Van Sluten to really get you off the ground and running um, for a game, especially considering whoever they're going against defensively. Um, Stanford is obviously a difficult matchup for any team in the country. Everybody. Maybe not, maybe not South Carolina. Well, it I was. still think it's a difficult it, oh, no, it was a,
0: yeah. it was a really good game. They, they should have won that game right. in South Carolina.
2: Yeah, no, it was. But that's it. it Stanford, it's, it's a tough one. It's more of an aberration than anything else. But, you know, you look at games like the like Oregon State and, and and Washington State, where they're down by ten or twelve with just a handful of minutes left in the fourth quarter, and they mount these ferocious comebacks to make it a game with seconds left on the clock. You just wonder where that was for the last twenty five to thirty minutes of the game. It's just like where where have these where has this energy and where has this consistent play around, along the perimeter and trying to attack the rim or at least pass the ball. Like, where has that been for the first three quarters of the game? Um, it's just got to be difficult for, for Coach Graves to, to go through the, the inconsistencies. Eric, I did have a question for you, though. At this late, and I guess at this midway, kind of later half of the season, do you think that the depth is finally getting to them where they just aren't as fresh as maybe some other teams who have 10 to 11 guys, or women, excuse me, 10 to 11 well, players on the bench, I, I
0: think there's a little bit of something to that from a lack of freshness from what they are, but also from just the step down. Like, I don't have, I, I wish they did the like plus minus, uh, you know, like over 48, like you do in the NBA, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like that. I, uh, the bench players, aside from Tay Hansen, have been kind of net negatives for a while. Um, you know, since Elise Hurst came back from. Excuse me. An ankle injury. She's been dreadful. I, I was looking at her. I, I, don't, I don't. Again, I don't want to pick on one player. You know, she. But she's been 0 for. She's 0 for 15, and I think five for 30 from the field in Pac-12 play. Um, well, and that's just terrible. And so these are not good. She's one for nine in this last game and turned it over a couple of times. Her contributions have been not great. You know, and so you've got veterans coming off the bench. You expect to be kind of key contributors that haven't been, and then your front court off the bench players. I think Dove is is capable, but never really going to be a huge net positive. She's kind of a Luke war type player where she was going to get you some hustle rebounds. She might block a couple of shots Mm -hmm. and play good defense, but she's can't really expect more than her making a couple If she's going to score. It's going to be shots created by others for her. Um, And then Basham, you know, I think going into the year you were expecting maybe by now she'd be kind of finding her rhythm, but she also missed the first month plus of the season. So she, never had a chance to kind of get there so she's probably only played I don't have off the top of my head maybe 75 80 minutes all season so to expect her to give you much like she comes in against Stanford and she's so physically overmatched that she can give you a couple minutes of just being a large person on the court but she doesn't really provide anything offensively or, or defensively that's a huge plus so I I think you're probably right in terms of there might be the maybe the starters are a little beaten up a little banged up from just having to play so much but I also think it, it hurts that when your when your bench is such a, a negative on the court here because like I yeah I do have last games pulled up here, um, you know like the plus minuses for basically everyone on the be- off the bench was was really bad um, and I think that's been kind of a trend of late aside from tay Hansen who will hit a bunch of big mm-hmm. shots for you and, and I think is basically a pseudo star like I, my my think right now is <clears> that they're playing eight players a game but I think only six of them are really giving you quality minutes.
1: Eric, I wonder how much is Vance Luton also hitting the wall of a freshman? Because while you guys were talking, I went and looked up her minutes. And the injury is a a factor for sure. But before that injury, she was averaging 27 minutes a game. And the six games after it, her minutes are actually up, like 30-something minutes, almost 31 full minutes of basketball. So she's playing more lately, and she's playing on an injured – Ankle, what is ankle, right? Um, when when you don't have depth and when you have to rely on freshmen, they're gonna hit a wall because they've never gone through this before. Even when she plays at IMG, like the, the competition at this level every single night is different. And then you have to factor in that every other week, most likely, you're flying somewhere, and sometimes you're flying two different locations. Um, that all that stuff adds up and t- we haven't even you know talked about the, the rigors of school too yeah like I, I wonder how much of this is van sluten and gray to an extent as well hitting that freshman wall that we that we see happen time and time again
0: yeah i i think the van sluten thing i think there's a lot of factors i think you guys have identified two of them, which the ankle thing has certainly impacted the explosiveness. You just—it's it, not like she's not still able to get off the floor, right. yeah, but yeah. around the basket, she's had a really hard time getting over people. And I, I also think you know this conference has a—the other part I want to bring up is this conference has really good, really good front court players. And Cameron Brink just had a triple double with ten shot blocks, and probably four or five of those came on Van Sluten's misses. Um, you know the Cal Cal doesn't have an elite front court, but the game before that, they played Oregon State, which has two five star freshman front court players. They have Mitrovich, who's six foot nine. I mean, that's a tough matchup again. Before that, Washington State probably not the same talent, but Bella Mericatetti and I think it's Tara Wallach are two of the better front court players in the conference. Wallach's like third in box, and Mericatetti is, I think, one of the higher scoring bigs in the conference. So that's not easy, you know. And you go around the league, Raya Marshall from USC, who they played earlier in the season, you know, kind of dominated Stanford. I was a big part of the reason that USC beat Stanford. That's a tough matchup. So she's gone against really good players and has just had a hard time in certain matchups. So uh I I think that's the thing that's been frustrating to a certain degree, I think, is following this team of you just don't know if like cuz for Van Sluten, she's had three games that are terrible, but then sandwiched in between is this Cal game where she was awesome. And she had like 20 points and nine rebounds and was really efficient Mm -hmm. and everything kind of was clicking. So um, I think some of it's matchup dependent as well, but no, I I think to get to the last part here, so we don't ramble too long on women's basketball um, ceiling for PAC 12 and NCAA tournaments. Well, Oregon right now is 14th in the net, which has been pretty consistent, but my thing still is they're, they're, Resume really is devoid of that kind of marquee victory. Their best wins right now right. are over teams that are all like 30 through 40 in the net. Um, and you really love to get a win over a team that's kind of in that upper echelon. And they've, they've had opportunities. They've lost those games to, 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 to now to Stanford, to Ohio State, to North Carolina, <clears throat> uh, to a lesser degree, Arizona and UCLA, which are actually further down here um, in, in the net ranking. So that part I think has been discouraging for NCAA tournament seating. There was a time when they were kind of right in the bubble as a four or a five seat to host um, the most recent bracketology I saw, which was a couple of days ago had them as a seven seed. So that's, that's you're kind of a step or two away from, from hosting probably need to get really, really hot to do that. I think it's pretty unlikely they host, which, which is tough in women's basketball I means you're going to have to play at least one game most likely at an opposing team's home court just to get to the mm-hmm. sweet 16. So, um, there's a big benefit of being one of the 16 best teams in, in women's basketball in college, and Oregon pretty clearly isn't quite at that level. And then the ceiling for the Pac-12 tournament. I mean, this conference is so darn good; it's it's hard to feel super confident. I mean, I think they could compete and contend with everybody in the conference because that's been the case so far. I mean, they have all their, all their losses have been by single digits, so it's not like they've gotten blown out in any of these games. But um, I think expecting them to win the conference tournament, like that, would be a really impressive outcome if they won the conference <laughs> tournament.
1: Eric, wouldn't you say though, like unlike the men, the women have a path to drastically change their chances of hosting because of how many like quad one games they still have to play. Yeah, yeah. Colorado and Utah are are like two and three in the standings. You you get them at home this weekend, and a sweep goes. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't solve your problems with the sweep, but I would figure like you get a sweep over those two schools. You're back in the top 25 you're gonna make a big jump and you're probably gonna make a big jump in the net rankings as
0: well yeah so so utah is seven in the net and colorado's 26th so you win those two games those are now your your two best games in the season the next two games are against ucla and usc which are also above you in the standings i think that's what four and five uh, or three three and five a tie and ucla is 25th in the net and usc is 27th so your next four games are all against top 27 teams in the net. And the, for those that are maybe unfamiliar with what that means, like top 27 in the net, those are teams squarely in the NCAA tournament. Those are right. teams that are that are probably at worst in that seven to eight range at best, maybe in the five to six range. So I mean, these are tough games coming up here. And that's right. Like if Oregon were to get hot theoretically and, and they, maybe they sweep them out in schools at home, which is going to be really tough, but they badly need. And then they split on the road in the LA schools. And you might say, well, that sounds tough, but, they did beat USC by 28 at home, so that maybe is a matchup there is favorable. Um, and UCLA was a competitive game. But if they wouldn't – like, the, kind of the same thing we talked about with the men's team where it's like, hey, if they were to somehow win their home game split on the road, suddenly if they Oregon does that for the next two weekends, you look up and go, wow, they've really improved their resume. They now have three marquee wins to kind of put their hats on. And as Matt said, yeah, suddenly being ranked in the top 25 is probably where you're at, and, and you're probably – back on the cusp of being a top 16 national team which sets you up to maybe host but that's going to take a lot of improved play here because i think it's it's no guarantee they win both games at home it's no guarantee they win any games at home with the way they're playing and how well utah's play that colorado is definitely more the more susceptible of the two teams um mm-hmm. they just got pl- plastered pretty good at home by usc the other day usc is also very up in the air like they beat stanford one day and then they get club club by utah the next and then they beat the crap out of usc so, or colorado so i don't know that's kind of an up and down team to to predict but yeah i mean i think both teams are kind of the same spot if they, if, if if both teams win three of their next four they're going to greatly improve their standing come tournament time and if and if both teams struggle and let's say lose more than they win you're going to look up and say gosh it's going to be hard for the men to make the tournament and you start questioning the women probably not out of the tournament field, but you start going like, well, is this going to be an eight or a nine seed? Which would be very disappointing considering at one point we were talking hosting.
1: Let's aim at aim. Let's end this podcast with this question. Who, where's the confidence level? Uh, More confidence in Oregon's men's team making the tournament or the women's team powering through and getting to host in the first or second round of the NCAA
2: tournament. It's kind of tough. <laughs> this is can hard. I pick, can I pick neither? Yeah, I was gonna say I <laughs> think either is our third option here.
0: I think both are pretty unlikely.
2: Um,
0: I'd say the men hosting is probably more likely than the women hosting at this point, because because I. No, uh, you mean the men making it? Yeah, sorry. And, and, and I think Matt and I are probably going to have the opposite answers because the teams we cover, we both have watched enough and kind of going like, ah, oh, are they that good? <laughs> like. That's kind of where I'm going. My initial gut is like, it's probably the men making it. But then I also go, I think if I was being honest, having watched the men play a lot, I'm like, I don't know how good they are either. So it's a weird time of year. I, I, I don't feel super great about either team, but historically one or both teams gets hot at some point and starts rattling off a bunch of wins. So I imagine one of them will do it. I just don't know who, I guess. Yeah, so, I, don't,
2: uh, I, I don't really, I don't like this one. I like both of these things are well, and they're and they're nuanced too. Like, the men's is just making the tournament, the women's is hosting in the NCAA tournament. I think of the two, it's got to be the men's just making the tournament because they just have to be one of 68 teams. The women's have to be one of 16 teams in order yeah. to host, and that's a much tougher ask than just being one of the best ter- one, one of the teams that makes the tournament. However, on both hands. I don't know. I, I don't know which happens. I really don't. Like, I, I could see both both teams going three and one over their next four games. More likely, the women's, but I could also see both teams going zero and four in the next two weekends because that's how the season has gone. That's how these two teams have played um, consistently and consistent at points. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I guess I'll go with the men's team because that's the is better. I'm more, I'm more likely to be right. And uh, yeah, the probability is much higher, so that makes me right. So I'm gonna go with that. I, I would side
1: with the men probably, but I'm gonna go. J- Jared was like, I want neither option. Is that was the first? I don't first, want either option. That was yeah. his uh, his first reaction. So I'm gonna go the other opposite end. I'm gonna say both. Uh, both Women opposite. get hot. They uh, play okay. four of their last eight at home against good competition. Yeah, that will help. That will help them there, and I think the men somehow find a way into the NCAA tournament. Just total half glass full, homer mode, engaged, positive. Send
0: something positive into the
1: universe here for a
0: second. Optimistic Matt to close the podcast. Optimistic Matt, and Oregon <laughs> will sign every single five star recruit. Hey now now Wednesday. I did not say that. No, aggregate that.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna make a story. Uh, 25 most likely commits for Oregon 2024. Uh, I'm just going to. You'll have to read the story if you listen to the podcast because it's just going to be the number one player in the country. Yeah, all the, all the way, way, way to down one, to 25. 25.
0: <laughs> I thought you said you were going to do the 25 players most likely to commit for the 23 class. And I was like, Jesus Christ, Matt, what are you going to be doing with your time?
1: <laughs> uh, that's late.
0: It's a real in-depth. Yeah, so <laughs> 22 people, working is not recruiting.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, That's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week, signing day coverage, uh, and then we'll also do a live stream later on Friday. Uh, Until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast.
0: Talk to you later, folks. Peace. CBS Sunday,
2: after the Equalizer.